0: Lord, uh, thank you that we can worship you. Thank you that you know us here and now. You are a great God that we admire in nature around us, and we look forward to your coming, Lord Jesus, to take us to be with yourself at last. Just uh, by your Holy Spirit, uh, breathe in these words that uh, would, they might shape us and change us. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. May we see you. Thank you, praise team, Calvin and Heidi and Amanda and Austin Sharda on drums and Laz Stoltz on uh, guitar. And uh, thanks to our AV team working hard. And uh, I, I sometimes felt it was a shame that the folks listening online only got to hear the praise team good as they are because it's such wonderful hearing the congregation singing out, especially after pandemic when we couldn't sing as loud as we could. Uh, so uh, that microphone is picking up you folks. That's what that one's there for. In case you wondered, what that aimless microphone pointing in your direction is, is just to get some of the house volume. It sounds so beautiful hearing God's people praising it. Today's message: Doom, man's portrait, and prevention. First section: A history, a short history of the hyperhuman. As we begin, I'd just like you to know I spent hours and hours in careful study and research on today's passage, including watching a couple of movies. Namely Left Behind the Movie and Left Behind World at War. Anybody remember those ones? Yeah. Kirk Cameron, you Kirk Cameron fans will appreciate that. It's hard to get into a passage that mentions The Great Rebellion and The Man of Lawlessness without calling to mind the 16 novel series written by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. These books have shaped to some degree the imagination of evangelicals, reinforced by movies like this in 2001 and 2005, and then rebooted in 2014 starring Nicolas Cage. You may have seen that one. There are pre-tribulation, pre-millennial dispensational assumptions that not all Christian scholars would be too sure about. So let's set aside any artistic license that is understandable in crafting a novel or a movie and orient ourselves to hear God's word more directly. What does the text actually say? There are larger cultural motifs at play here too. In "The Left Behind series, the Antichrist figure takes the form of Nikolai Carpathia, head of the U.N. or global community, as it's renamed, who rises to prominence, promising the world a time of peace, despite food shortages and other problems. At the time of writing had actually only gotten partway through the second movie to the point where Buck played by Kirk Cameron, is stockpiling vaccines of all things to prepare for a threatened period of pestilences brought on by bioengineering. Hmm, Say, what have we just been through these past two years? And this movie was released in 2005. How uncanny. When society is breaking down and lawlessness increases, people become desperate in their hurting and deprivation. They long for a a strong leader to emerge who will guide them back to safety and security. That could describe the nation of Germany back in the 1920s and 30s, which was struggling to make reparations for its part in the First World War ending in 1918. A charismatic, dynamic leader rose to popularity who proposed Germans had the makings of a master race, Their potential was great. They could be leaders in the world. His name was Adolf Hitler, and his National Socialist Party turned the nation's economy around and whipped people's fervor and confidence to new heights through various programs and propaganda. Hitler was embodying the philosophy of one of his heroes, Friedrich Nietzsche, a fellow whose name is as hard to spell as you can imagine, and it sounds like a sneeze. Nietzsche, a German, actually Polish-born philosopher, 1844 to 1900. This does have some bearing on the text, so bear with me. When Hitler officially congratulated the Italian fascist dictator Mussolini, he gave him a copy of Nietzsche's book. Nietzsche introduced the concept of the Übermensch. There's your fancy word for today. Everybody say Übermensch. Übermensch, or what I'll call the hyperhuman, who sort of translate into English. To quote from Wikipedia, Nietzsche introduces the concept of the Übermensch in contrast to his understanding of the otherworldliness of Christianity. That's us, he's talking about Zarathustra, that's one of Nietzsche's characters in his book, proclaims the will of the Übermensch to give meaning to life on earth and admonishes his audience to ignore those who promise otherworldly fulfillment to draw them away from the earth. That's us he's talking about. Zarathustra ties the ubermensch to the death of God. While the concept of God was the ultimate expression of otherworldly values and their underlying instincts, belief in God nevertheless did give meaning to life for a time. God is dead means that the idea of god can no longer provide values nietzsche refers to this crucial paradigm shift as a reevaluation of values according to nietzsche the moral doctrine of catholicism had become outdated with the sole source of values exhausted the danger of nihilism or nihilism looms Zarathustra presents the Übermensch as the creator of new values to banish nihilism, end quote from Wikipedia. Thanks for bearing with me. What's the upshot of that in plain English? Well, Nietzsche perceived that humans had at large killed God. That, That God is dead phrase, that's from him. But if there's no God, that paves the way for nihilism the rejection of all religious and moral principles in the belief that life is meaningless. Now that would be discouraging. For life to be meaningless, pointless, no sense of right or wrong, good or bad, nihilism leads to despair. Now to fend that off, Nietzsche proposes ideal of the hyperhuman or ubermensch. The human that transcends others and points a meaningful way forward. Now, do you see how this fed into Nazi philosophy, tyranny, and eugenics? Hitler would believe himself to be the strong man, providing leadership and direction to others in society. Relegate society's misfits, the disabled, those suffering from gender confusion, non-Aryans like the Jews, to the gas chambers. His approach worked to the point that his fellow citizens largely allowed him and his cronies increasing power politically. Hmm. Well, that's all just kind of general context. In Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, he looks into the future and warns of another strong man who will arise to prominence in a time of rebellion and proclaim himself to be God. What else would you expect if God is in fact dead? That creates a huge vacuum, a meaningless environment people find hard to tolerate. But Paul foretells the destruction of this strong man or hyperhuman by one stronger yet. God may have been dead in a tomb three days but rose again it's a temptation to dwell on end times speculation and conjectures about exactly how the timeline will unfold all that pre-trib mid-trib all that stuff but i want to start from a more productive and positive angle what is the hyperhuman god is calling us to become through faith in christ how is he transforming us mere mortals from fallen sinners into overcoming saints So, before we develop the portrait of the man of lawlessness, or Antichrist, let's look first at who, by God's grace, we are fashioned to be in contrast. Today's big idea, be so strong in grace that Antichrist looks a loser. Now, when we say this, I'd like you to do this, okay? You're not allowed to do this to any of your siblings, It's not to do at home. If you happen to meet Antichrist walking down the street, you can do this to Antichrist. But anyway, just a little bit of uh, body, mind, uh, memory aid here. Can we say this together? Be so strong in Christ that Antichrist looks a loser. Yeah. Uh, Apologies to you left-handed people. The L doesn't work quite right that way. Uh Next section, the believer fashioned for favor. You may recall from last week in chapter 1 of 2 Thessalonians, Paul was writing to commend believers for standing firm in the face of all the persecutions and trials you are enduring, verse 4. Compounding these sufferings, it seems a false letter purporting to come from Paul had suggested the coming of Jesus and gathering of the faithful to him had already happened, that the Thessalonian believers had been left behind, so to speak. Paul asks them verse two not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. He wants to reassure them they haven't missed out. He seeks to comfort them in their troubles. We see these words encourage and comfort emphasized in two sixteen and seventeen. So the verses at the end of the chapter 2 point a portrait of who the believers are becoming by God's grace. Paul's focusing on the positive. His description provides a real contrast to the character of Antichrist described earlier in the chapter. First, believers are selected saints. Verse 13a we ought always to thank God for you, brothers loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Can you get more positive than that? You are brothers, sisters loved by the Lord. You were chosen, selected by God to be saved. Jews in the Old Testament were God's chosen people, picked to be witnesses for Him to the nations. Christians are chosen by the Lord similarly to let our light shine before others in such a way that they see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. Matthew 5.16 The Holy Spirit indwells us and sanctifies us, making us holy, making saints of us, set apart for God's purposes, increasing in personal righteousness, living Jesus' way. Believers are truth-trusters. Verse 13. God chose you to be saved through belief in the truth. We are truth-trusters, putting our faith in the gospel or message about Jesus, a message that will be shown to be true according to reality when Jesus comes back to gather us to him. Believing is key to salvation. As John put it in a most assuring way, First John 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you have that faith, that assurance? Put your trust in Christ and discover how real and alive he is. Third, we are glory sharers. The Holy Spirit is producing his fruit and gifts in our lives, so we come increasingly to resemble Jesus, whose love and caring and peace drew people to him magnetically. And when he returns, we will share his glory more visibly. Verse 14, he called you to this through our gospel, so that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The best beauty treatment is to have the Lord's joy, peace, and love bathing your heart and consciousness. Fourth, believers are teaching tethered, anchored in God's instruction amidst life's confusing messages and temptations. Verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. The phrase... Passing on is akin to that in rabbinic Judaism, where a rabbi repeatedly ingrained biblical truth and sayings into the memories of his disciples. Also, this hints that Paul's teaching is not something he cleverly invented or made up as he went along, but he was passing along to others the same teaching he had received, whether from Scripture or others who followed Jesus before him. Make it your personal goal to try to read the Bible and pray daily, even if it's just for a short time. That practice anchors your soul; it gives you a solid base from which to construe meaning from life. And God's voice will coach you on the path to take. Jeremiah six sixteen says, "This is what the Lord says: Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is, and walk in it." you will find rest for your souls. We are teaching tethered. Fifth, we are core encouraged. You find life discouraging or challenging at times? Does it seem sometimes the world's gone to pot and things just keep getting worse instead of better? As the endless stream of negative news started to make you cynical, find encouragement. In your Lord. Verses sixteen, seventeen. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts. There's God's love for us again. See point one, Selected Saints. I've emphasized words with the root encouraged there twice in the same sentence. The root in the Greek is paraklesis, which you may recognize is a term Jesus uses for the Holy Spirit, our counselor, comforter, one who comes alongside to help. I mentioned earlier how Paul's aim in writing is to give comfort to the Thessalonians amidst their troubles and persecutions. In fact, both NRSV and New Living Translation here translate it comfort instead of NIV's encouragement. Uh, 216 uh, in the in New Living Translation. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal comfort and a wonderful hope, comfort you and strengthen you in every good thing you do and say. We are core encouraged. A favorite passage of mine that similarly emphasizes God's comfort and points out this is for sharing with others 2 Corinthians 1, 3-7. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows." If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. Do You see how kind of God takes, adds meaning to those troubles, those sufferings in your life when you're struggling He comforts you, and then there's a purpose in that that you can then relate to other people that are going through similar struggles. You can comfort them in turn. Is there someone you know who might benefit from you sharing with them the comfort and encouragement you find in knowing Jesus? Next, we are goodness giving. Verses 16 again. Uh, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father strengthen you in every good deed and word. God is good all the time. And all the time, you know it. Our job is to share that goodness with other people, to dispel the rumor that God is dead, or even worse, that God is malicious or a meanie. Titus 2.14 says Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people who are his very own, eager to do what is good. Hmm. Would those who know you best describe you as someone eager to do good? Or eager to goof off and hog the remote, say? So there are some characteristics that the Lord is producing in our lives. Appealing traits that should set us apart and make other people want what we've got. Uh, I'm just going to back up here a couple of slides if I can. Selected saints, truth trusters, glory sharers, teaching tethered, core encouraged, goodness giving. That sounds so positive. Again, our big idea today, here we go, be so strong in grace that Antichrist looks a loser. Next section, reveling in rebelling, clues to the condemned. Paul talks of a rebellion occurring in the last days in verse 3. But he adds in verse 7, for the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. But the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. Lawlessness was already at work in Paul's day, and it's still at work in our day. To some degree, the man of lawlessness is already with us. Rebellion is endemic in fallen human nature. Witness the toddler, a.k.a. terrible two, who stamps their foot, curls their forehead into a frown and says defiantly, No! Anybody had any of those? There are many theories as to what Paul's referring to in the words, the one who holds back the secret power of lawlessness. Seems when Paul was with the Thessalonians, he had spoken more plainly about these things. One theory would be the current government as the state has a role in restraining lawlessness. See Romans 13. He's talking about the Roman government there. So when Paul talks about it being taken out of the way, he could have been misconstrued as politically seditious had he been more exact. Oh, this guy is talking about the Roman government being taken out of the way. Uh, He's a, a rebel. Paul is choosing his words carefully in case this letter were to fall into the wrong hands. So that makes it kind of ambiguous for us. We don't really know what he's specifying. It's a very live topic in Canada today. What is the role of government in protecting health and safety? When does government overreach occur? What should be the limits to constitutional rights? When does freedom verge on rebellion and lawlessness? For Christians, whatever country we live in, God's spirit within us should always be guiding us in love, peace, kindness, goodness, and self-control. The royal law of love informs how we treat our neighbor it would seem from paul's letter that whatever is holding back this secret power of lawlessness when that's removed uh, it takes be that some human or supernatural agency at that point verse 3 the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed the man doomed to destruction new living translation the one who brings destruction doom man However bad sinners have been through history, the Hitlers and the Stalins and the Paul Bernardos and even you and I in our moments of worst failure, all these coalesce in one supremely evil person, the hyperhuman to whom God is dead. John calls him the Antichrist, but he's not being the only one of his kind, First John 2.18. Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming Even now, many antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. The portrait Paul paints of this enigmatic figure contrasts with the characteristics we've seen of your typical Christian. First, while believers are selected saints, the doomed man is anti-God. Verse 4. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or worshipped. We saw how Nietzsche's hyperhuman ubermensch figure arose in the vacuum created by thinking God is dead. Antichrist steps forward to assume that role and power once attributed to God by those who revered divinity. Second, Christians are truth trusters. doom man is truth despising Verse 10, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing, they perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. It's a conscious choice. They refuse to love the truth. Apart from God's intervention, we are spiritually dead. The Bible seems like nonsense or fairy tales, irrelevant. Also verse 12, and so that All will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but have delighted in wickedness. NRSV took pleasure in unrighteousness. If God is dead, what's to say anything's right or wrong? Why not just please yourself any way you know how? Regardless of whether other people are taken advantage of or abused. Third, believers are glory sharers. Jesus sharing his own glory and splendor with us, so we are transformed into his likeness. But Antichrist is self-promoting. His ego is big enough to fill the universe. Verse 4b, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worship, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. A serpent's trap. Descended all the way through the ages from the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, 5. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Paul may be recalling Emperor Gaius trying to get a statue of himself installed in the temple at Jerusalem, A.D. 40. You may master every other type of immorality, but pride and vanity can still get you even then. We need accountability. We need others we can trust to be honest with us about our areas of weakness and blind spots. Fourth, the Christian is teaching tethered. Antichrist is law scorning. Verse 3, the man of lawlessness is revealed. Verse 7, the secret power of lawlessness. Verse 8, then the lawless one will be revealed. Government officials and church leaders are not above the law. That doesn't mean believers should be legalistic and judgmental. Jesus hung out with tax collectors and sinners. They heard him gladly, but he could still counsel them to go and sin no more. Yet the predominant note was God's grace and welcome to those who the religious establishment had pushed afar off. Jesus came to fulfill the law by his perfect once-for-all sacrifice. Believers are core encouraged, God working in our lives to cheer us on, but those who follow Antichrist are divinely deluded because they refused to believe the truth. Verse 11, for this reason God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and be condemned. Verse 12, God's not being unfair. It's entirely their own decision whether or not to be receptive to the truth of the gospel, but they choose not. So God is just deepening the rut they've chosen, as in Romans 1. God gave them over to sexual impurity, to shameful lust, to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. In essence, God says, have it your way, along with the associated consequences. Six, Christ's followers are goodness-giving, but Antichrist is devil-displaying. His works are evil, deceptive, not good. Verses 9 and 10. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. Deceptive works of Satan. Yes, there is a power at work there, but it's a counterfeit. Tricking the observer, not genuine. Aware, but not alarmed. Should we be afraid of the end times? Should we be trembling in our boots at the potential rise of Antichrist to power? That's not the impression Paul gives. His purpose is to encourage those suffering persecution at Thessalonica. In fact, he says, even Antichrist is no contest for Jesus. Now, well, verse 8, for the fate of this dreaded doom man. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Huh? How's that again? Is there a, a knockdown, down drag drag-em-out fight? It's not even close. No contest. Jesus overthrows Antichrist with the breath of his mouth, destroys him by the splendor, NRSV, manifestation of his coming. A breath. Poof. He's gone. Paul may be alluding to an Old Testament prophecy, Isaiah 11.4. But with righteousness he will judge the needy, with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Antichrist may be somewhat imposing, but compared to the humblest believer, he ain't no match. Christ in you completely outclasses doom man. Again, our big idea for today, be so strong in grace that Antichrist looks a loser. Last section, one little word will fell him. In October 1527, the plague was approaching, and a former monk in Germany named Martin Luther penned a hymn which was to become the theme song of spiritual liberation for many, then and through following centuries. Historian Louis Benson observes, It was the Marseillaise of the Reformation. It was sung in all the churches of Saxony, often against the protest of the priest. It was sung in the streets, and so heard, comforted the hearts of Melanchthon, Jonas, and Crusiger as they entered Weimar when banished from Wittenberg in 1547. It was sung by poor Protestant emigrants on their way into exile, and by martyrs at their death. It is woven into the web of the history of Reformation times, and it became the true national hymn of Protestant Germany. Tim notes, based on Psalm 46, the hymn is a celebration of the sovereign power of God over all earthly and spiritual forces and of the sure hope we have in him because of Christ. After its publication, it gained immense popularity throughout Reformed Europe. Martin Luther faced formidable foes, but saw the gospel emerge afresh in a way that invigorated Christ's church. Paul the Apostle sought to encourage the fledgling church by his writings and insight into the future. Rebellion and lawless times may come, but Jesus is still Lord and in control, even of doom man. As Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress, put it, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Let's uh, give her a try, those of you that know the tune for A Mighty Fortress, and we'll see how this verse goes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Where are we here? And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath will his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. Let's pray. Sovereign God, with the saints, you have privileged us to peer far down the corridors of time to when things will be wrapped up, and evil and lawlessness at last be stopped in their tracks. Help us to be faithful witnesses, portraying Jesus by our words and deeds. Even when society around us seems to have abandoned all moral moorings. Thank you for your teachings and truth that keep reminding us which side is up and the hope to which you have called us. We praise you for your victory at the cross and when the Son of Man returns, whom we await eagerly. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thank you, Ernest, for that word this morning.